From Advanced Local and Meadowlark Media, I'm Sarah Gannum. This is the mayor of Maple Avenue. Chapter 9. In the late 2000s, I was covering crime in central Pennsylvania when a new drug began to grab headlines. The nation was entering a second wave of what had already been a devastating opioid crisis, and the potency of this new substance would tip the scales, causing overdose statistics to skyrocket. A synthetic opioid 100 times stronger than morphine. 50 times stronger than heroin. One dose of this poison right here can kill you. If you simply touch it, you can overdose. I so distinctly remember the first time that I heard about it. A police officer telling me that these powerful pain-relieving patches were being stolen from hospitals. It's used to treat chronic pain or to sedate people with late-stage cancers. And not only were users dying from them. Any encounter a law enforcement officer has with unidentified white powder can be extremely dangerous. But first responders who came into contact with them were being injured, too. That's how potent and dangerous this stuff was. Police say this is the first time they've had to deal with something like this, where they had to give one of their own officers Narcan. First responders recovering after possible exposure. A new video warning to first responders from the Drug Enforcement Administration educates emergency officials about the effects of the powerful drug fentanyl. It wasn't exactly new, but it was gaining momentum in the U.S. Fast. One drug, fentanyl, is like rocket fuel in the sharp rise of this crisis. A deadly dose of heroin mixed with fentanyl. 75% of overdoses are related to fentanyl, a synthetic opioid 100 times stronger than morphine. Developed in 1959 as a synthetic intravenous anesthesia, fentanyl is widely used as a pain medication for patients in advanced stages of cancer. But over the years, fentanyl has undergone a massive evolution in processing and availability. There are widely available illicit versions of the drug in the form of a synthetic powder, most of which is manufactured in China. And because it's cheap and potent, fentanyl is often used to cut other more expensive drugs like heroin, cocaine, and fake prescription pills. But that's really dangerous because fentanyl can be 50 to 100 times more potent than heroin. Really small doses can have fatal results. Getting accurate measurement in street drugs, well, that's shoddy at best. And so heroin laced with fentanyl has made an already fatal addiction much, much deadlier. And that is the reality into which Sean was thrusted on the day that he died as he wandered through the streets of Pittsburgh talking to Megan and hoping to score. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know if the drug user is 100% sure what they're getting sometimes. That's Dave Morante, Sean's old probation officer, who is now a police officer in the Pittsburgh area. People in Sean's world, the dangerous world engulfed by addiction, are quick to point out that fentanyl has completely changed everything. I have definitely dealt with somebody that's overdosed, and a lot of times it's 100% fentanyl. When I ask them what they were doing, they'll tell me, oh, no, I, was, I was using heroin. I mean, it's still a huge problem. Back then, I could have done 
three quarters of a gram heroin in one shot. And Steve Perlstein, who was in recovery with Sean, told me that a fatal dose of fentanyl can come in a small amount of heroin, making it a complete guessing game every single time. And you do a tiny bit and it kills you because it's something totally different. Yeah. You know what I mean? so. Dave and Anthony, the guys who ran the halfway house in Pittsburgh, agree. Right, we do it right. You know, it's so much. And it's like that, when I was using and I was getting high, we just throw each other in the shower, you know what I mean? Wake up, you know? It's not like that anymore. Like, I had one guy who was 10 months clean. He was going home in two days, and he passed away. He was 23 years old. He was going home in two days. He made one bad decision, and that's what this is now. It's one bad decision, and you're gone. Sean Sinisi's death certificate lists his cause of death as mixed drug intoxication, and it lists fentanyl first. It's been nearly 15 years since I first heard about fentanyl from law enforcement, and after years and years of hearing stories about accidental fentanyl overdoses, I often wonder why this drug has been able to stick around. You would think, given how deadly it is, the market would have rejected its use by now. Dr. Sapala and I talked about this. We talk about opium use, the old terminology of chasing the dragon. That has to do with trying to get back to that first high you ever had because it was so incredible. That's the experience of most people with opioids. After a period of time, they're not getting the same sort of high tolerance develops remarkably rapidly. And the brain is trying to limit the intoxication to leave a person, you know, alive, up walking, talking and everything. And so you don't get that same sort of high as the initial high. And so they seek ways of getting that. So that's one reason fentanyl is so popular. It's so much more powerful than the other available opioids that people hope maybe I'll get that high like I had the first time or the first two or three times. And so they'll risk their lives to take it, hoping that they'll get that high again. Dr. Zapala explained to me that the way opioids kill is that they stop you from breathing. One of the side effects of opioids, the main reason it causes overdose death is respiratory depression. The, the respiratory rate, our breathing rate decreases and ultimately stops so we aren't breathing and die. And when we spoke about this, he brought up something about Sean's years of prescribed gabapentin use. Gabapentin does the same to a, a lesser degree, but in combination with opioids, it's more likely to cause respiratory depression. And it appears that opioids may actually cause an increase of the concentration of gabapentin in people's blood, and thus in their brain, thus even more likely to cause side effects, and in particular, respiratory depression. To be clear, Sean's death certificate does not mention gabapentin. After fentanyl, the intoxicants that are listed are heroin and then two antidepressants, Celexa and Lexapro. But that said, he was certainly taking gabapentin at the time. We know this from his medical records at the Meadows. So I hadn't really thought about how that might have contributed, you it know. It really could have, yeah. According to Marianne, weeks after Sean's death, the friend who was with Sean on that day of his overdose, he still had Sean's cell phone. So, like almost everything else in the last decade, Marianne took matters into her own hands. She tracked down this friend to get the cell phone back. 
She also got a hold of Sean's wallet and even the surveillance tape at the McDonald's, and then she handed everything over to police. Sean's wallet had two used bags of heroin and two unused ones, and also a piece of paper with the name Ghost. But the police told her, They're saying that they don't have any tie, for sure. As far as we know, the investigation is still open, but Pittsburgh police wouldn't talk to me on the record about it. Marianne says that the police told her the investigation is still active, but almost four years later, she hasn't heard from them. According to her, there's never been any real progress. I just think there's so many cases that it's just like another one, unless there was something right there in their hands. They weren't going to, you know, they told me they were pursuing it only because they had the dealer's name that I gave them. Did you have any other conversations with the Meadows or after you left Scott that voicemail? Like, did you ever talk to him again? No, never. He never called you back? No, he never called me back after that voicemail I left. Marianne says she did talk once to Dr. Dengel from the Presidium. So it was probably a week after Sean passed. He called me to offer his sympathy. I would have to say that was not a very pretty conversation because I was pretty angry. The Presidium did later tell us in a statement that it sends its condolences to the Sinisi family. The Sinisis, realizing that officials were not going to take action in Sean's case, decided to seek justice on their own terms. Marianne and her husband sued Penn State over Sean's death, and they settled earlier this year. In addition to the lawsuit, Marianne also started a nonprofit called the Families United for Change, which aims to reform the drug rehab system and address some of the failures that kept Sean from getting better. One of the first things that she did with her new advocacy was to force change at the hospital where Sean's identification was an issue. But according to Marianne, they have since changed the policy that prevented Josh and Caitlin from seeing Sean after he died. Email correspondence shows that officials also granted Marianne $5,000 to commission an iron statue that she helped design of a person with a hole through the center of their body, illustrating the significance of the loss of a child. Altoona's mayor gave her a plot of land on a main road, and around the statue, she built a garden with benches and flowers, a public place where she hopes to hold community gatherings that can help enlighten people to some of the changes that are needed. The societal shift that is necessary in order for future Shawns to have a different ending to their stories. I just feel like he suffered so much that maybe in some way this gives him some peace that something was done in honor of him. It also gives him some life moving on, moving forward. His life meant something. I can't explain how it felt and how it does still, and I think a lot of me still tries to suppress a lot of it. In October of 2020, I visited Sean's brother and his wife, Caitlin, at their home in Pittsburgh. 
We sat at their kitchen table, and we talked about Sean's life and his death. I couldn't even think, you know. I, I just know as soon as we got home, I mean, I was upstairs, and I think I was on the floor crying for about an hour to two hours and couldn't even move. And that's when my cousin Adam just came and, you know, was holding me and, you know, to tell me it was going to be okay. I'm sorry. Just tell me it was going to be all right. It's just, like, tough because you feel like you... As we sat talking... I couldn't help but notice. On the wall behind them was a collage of pictures. One of the photos is of the two brothers, Josh and Sean, arms wrapped around each other's shoulders, standing on Josh's front porch. Sean looks healthy, happy. He has a big grin. Nearby is a photo from Josh and Caitlin's wedding day. It's also a happy moment. She's smashing a piece of cake into his face, and they're surrounded by friends and family. But in this photo, Sean is missing. Sean did not make it to the wedding. He died five weeks before it. It's a part of this tragedy that the family predicted, one that they had used almost in a way to try to will the opposite to happen. Over and over throughout 2018, Josh and Marianne and Mike had said to Sean, no one believes you will be around for Josh's wedding. And now, ladies and gentlemen, for the first time at husband and wife... I think we left a, a place setting yeah, for him. Yeah, just a place setting at a table and didn't really put pictures. Yeah, we like just kind of left. It was awful. Yeah, it was pretty terrible. I mean, it was really hard. Because... Every single time that I looked at my mom, she looked miserable. She actually held it together better than I did. It was a tough, tough day. Everybody would be a liar if they didn't say that that black cloud was hanging over everybody's head that day. The wedding was, it was, it was, it was terrible. You know, I hate to say it, but yeah, it, it was really bad. It was, you know. I love my Josh to death, and I was happy for him, but I wasn't, I wasn't happy at all. It was probably one of the worst days of my life. And I hate to say that, but I was just in so much pain that he wasn't there. You know, it, it was just awful for me. It was just a struggle because I could see that everyone was like, yeah. sad and trying to be happy and then like but we're all trying to like it was like a force and then part of me at least felt guilty for enjoying yeah the moment that I could enjoy yeah because you're just like this isn't what it's supposed to be and because it was literally like a month after he had passed that it was just so soon and so like hard to I don't know it was still very fresh That day, and every day since, Josh has worn a cross that Sean kept around his neck. It helps Josh stay connected to his brother, as he lives through life experiences that he never thought his brother would miss out on. The wedding was the first. That first Christmas was really tough, because it was, you know, the first holidays without him. But then, you know, as time's gone on, now it's, now he's not going to be here for the baby. And, you know... It's just like... Caitlin rubs her pregnant belly. They welcomed a new baby girl into the world in April of 2021, a girl named Amelia. It's just a lot of firsts that now he's not here for, yeah. different things that he's not here for, and things that, like, my promotion and different stuff, like, he's not here to share it with, he's not here to see, like... 
Where small things. Even something as stupid as how the country is so divided right now that's going on. He's not here to look at it and talk to him about it and be like, can you believe this? Like, what's happening? Mm-hmm. Just small things. Like, like us having a bonfire with friends and him not being able to come. You know what I mean? Josh is focused on trying to move forward, trying to help his mom change the narrative for people who can still be helped. I know my mom has said this, but I mean, it's it's accurate. I hear it all the time, too. I mean, nobody chooses to have brain cancer, but when they get it, they're treated with something completely different and compassion and, you know, all that other stuff. And what's the difference? I mean, you don't choose to be, you know, addicted to something that is killing you, no matter what it is. I mean, you don't choose to be sexually assaulted. Yeah, I, I think that he was robbed of, of his life. And I was robbed and our family was robbed and every friend and, and, you know, acquaintance, anybody that he was around was robbed of having him around. I think it was definitely he was robbed in the fact that when he was trying to get help, he wasn't getting the help that he needed. Like they just continued to push him away, push him away and just assume that he was an addict. And instead of helping him address that and deal with all of it, I think it was just they were checking their boxes. Almost every interview I did for this podcast, I started with something that goes like this. Following the Me Too movement, there's been a lot of spotlight on the bad guy, you know, holding the people to account for their behavior toward other people when it comes to sexual misconduct and sexual harassment. But I still have noticed that there hasn't been so much focus on once the bad guy loses his job or in this case goes to jail, what happens to the victims? It's not the end of the story for them like it is the end of the story for everybody else. And I wanted to sort of start there with you, big picture, like these issues, why aren't we talking about them? Well, I think A, because they're not as glamorous, right? That's Jennifer Storm again. She's the former Pennsylvania victim witness advocate. They don't capture the headlines. Jen Storm is also a survivor of child sex abuse herself. And as a result, she's also a recovering addict turned advocate, author, and documentarian of her own story. Her book, turned film, Blackout Girl, explores the lack of treatment for trauma victims. And I think you captured it really well. Like, that's that's the story that society gets, and that's the one that they click on. What they don't realize is for so many of the survivors that are involved in that, their healing has either not even begun or is just beginning the moment the lights go out and the headlines go away. And we don't talk about it because if we're not talking about it, then institutions don't have to be held accountable for their failures. You know, it's not a choice for so many of us, right? It's survival. And survival is not a choice. It's an instinct. And for far too many of us, for an alarming amount of survivors of sexual violence, and I use us because, as you know, in my story, I was as well a drug-addicted individual as a result of my trauma from being raped as a child. It's a survival mechanism, and it's a coping mechanism. When I went to treatment, you know, which was a direct result of a suicide attempt, from my crack addiction, which if you would have just peeled back a couple more layers, you would have discovered was a result of being raped, right? When I went to treatment, there was nothing for that part of my story. There was no additional treatment. There was no additional curriculum. It it just wasn't a factor. And so I'm now in my 24th year of recovery. And when I started doing research for the documentary, we found there's still nothing, especially behind the walls of those more commonly access treatment facilities, those ones where you're on state assistance, you're on Medicare, you're on Medicaid, where you slowly start seeing really amazing trauma 
facilities are these private pay, completely out of reach entities that only, you know, the 1% of society can access. And I would tell you, even those are not really equipped to deal with the trauma that we're talking about. They're going to just have yoga, massage, right? They're going to have spa time. Marianne and I recently caught up informally, and we talked about what she's been trying to do with her newly formed nonprofit. She told me a story about their summer vacation at the beach, about how she sat one morning as her daughter Jess went for a run in the sand. She watched her in a state of disbelief. When she gave Jess up for adoption decades ago, she never thought she would see her again. Yet here they were, as a family, vacationing together. At the same time, she never, ever thought, when Sean was born and she held him for the first time, that he would not be here. That this little kid who loved his family, who loved life, would be missing from their family vacation. Shortly after Sean died, his family and friends gathered in Marianne's backyard garden to share stories, to pay their respects, and to remember the kid they knew as the mayor. Josh had picked out a song that he wanted to play, and Michael wanted a Leonard Skinner simple man. Mama told me when I was young, who sat beside me. And then we went around and had people like Tim tell funny stories about him growing up here. Pretty much the words just flowed that night. Tim is a neighbor, the firefighter who talked about Sean in chapter one. It was very heart-wrenching, you know, for everybody. And I was reminiscing about different little scenarios or stories that me and Sean had shared together. He just wanted to help. He just wanted to be part of something. He was excited to do anything. If I was planting trees, I mean, you would have thought he was like a little kid at Christmas time. He was just having a time in his life doing even something that simple in life. And he always made you feel good. He was someone that you always enjoy having around him. Uh, a couple of his aunts and his uncle said something. Like Aunt Deborah, who he was close to. I never would have dreamed that this would have happened to him. Never in a million years. I miss that kid every day. And I just think of all the stuff that he could have been doing. His sister and Josh and Caitlin, Michael and I, and the three grandkids all had a balloon to let go. And that was it. That was our memorial and the place that he loved the best. I don't regret any of that. The Sinises did not write an obituary for Sean. Marianne told me having a record of what happened just did not feel like the right thing to do. But Sean wrote one years earlier when he was a patient at the Belleville Rehab Facility in Pennsylvania. 
It was one of his assignments. Marianne found it when she was packing him for the ranch years later. And it always bothered her that they made him do that. When we read that, that was just horrible. Horrible that they would make somebody do that. Like they don't know that they're playing with death every second of their life. You think they're trying to scare people? Yeah, but what does that do? If you could get scared straight, I think we wouldn't have a problem. Regardless of her feelings about the assignment, it's Sean, in his own words, reflecting on his death. So I wanted to share it. Eerily, he even predicted the timing. He was off by just a year and four days. Obituary. In loving memory of Sean Sinisi. February 12th, 1992 to September 8th of 2017. Sean died in his home unexpectedly September 23rd or September 3rd of 2017. Sean enjoyed the outdoors, hunting, fishing, four-wheeling, camping, etc. And he was a very loving, kind, forgiving person. Sean was cremated. He's in a box in his old bedroom closet. And we just put him where he still sits today, in the closet, up on the shelf of his old bedroom. I can't even bring myself to touch the box. But I crazily sometimes go in there and talk to him. Or if I open that closet to get something out, I'll talk to him. I don't know what I'll feel like later. But at this point, it just gives me some sort of peace to have him there. In his room? Yeah, in his room where he grew up and where he was the happiest. On Maple Avenue. The Mayor of Maple Avenue is written and produced by me, Sarah Gannam, in partnership with PenLive and Meadowlark Media. Additional writing was done by Carl Scott at Meadowlark Media. We could not have done this project without funding from the Fund for Investigative Journalism and the Pulitzer Center. Our associate producers are Tori Whitten, Sarah Ruberg, and Ethan Schreier. Additional reporting was done by Charlie Thompson, Aaron Kasinitz, and Andrea Keckley. The executive producers are Kate Barron, Burke Noel, and Teresa Bonner for PenLive, and Carl Scott for Meadowlark Media. The Mayor of Maple Avenue was edited by James Sullivan and Gabriel Rojas at WUFT in Gainesville, Florida, by Jake Gloth at Cedar Production, Martin Boutros at Penn Studios, and Stephen Smith at Meadowlark Media. The sound design was done by Jesse Perlstein. Our theme music was composed by Pete Redman, with an original score composed by Jesse Perlstein. Our mixing and mastering engineer was Robin Wise. The part of Sean Sinisi is voiced by James Sullivan. Our team also includes production assistants Megan Lavi-Heaton, Joe Hermit, Sarah Tantawi, photographer Sean Simmers, and consultants John Hammontree and Neville Elder. Our legal counsel is Richard Bernstein. The podcast cover art was designed by Andy Ross. To see extras like slideshows, interactive spaces, and written transcripts, visit our website at www.themayorofmapleavenue.com. Hold up. 